Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. All right, Quadcast Nation, we have a very exciting podcast today. We're, you know, we're on Oncology Month, Breast Cancer Awareness, so forth, and we got not only an oncologist, a man that does preventative medicine, has a holistic approach to health. I'm talking Dr. Stephen Tucker. Welcome to the Quadcast. Hey, Dr. K. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. First off, where are you right now and what time is it? It's 10 minutes after 9 p.m. in Singapore. Oh, my gosh. And maybe we could start off with, like, how you landed in, in Singapore and what, what life is like currently. Oh, so, I mean, yeah, that's a straightforward story after growing up in St. Louis, Missouri. And then, of course, you have an oncology multidisciplinary practice in Singapore. <laughs> Didn't you do that earlier in your career? Oh, I was thinking about the same thing, but I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's called uh, midlife crisis, <laughs> but it was my third midlife crisis. So uh, here's the backstory. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor. There's some people that come to medicine later in life and some people that never know what they want to do. And, and you shouldn't push them to like commit, uh, you know, as with someone with, you know, college age kids, like, no, don't go pursue your passion, mm. pursue whatever you just want to do and you'll figure it out along the way. But um, I always wanted to be a doctor. That's all I wanted to do. I know I said that out loud when I was seven years old. Mm. And so that led me just straight through, you know, U.S. education, chemistry, medical school, always did a lot of science along the way, thought I wanted to be a physician scientist, you know, turned down MD, PhD opportunities at the beginning, and um, actually ended up at University of Missouri, Columbia, uh, the state I grew up in. And, you know, they just really, you know, made it some, you know, a, uh, an offer you couldn't say no to. And, I, the first two years were very traditional medical education, but I really was sort of missing something, something in a bigger picture. And I was encouraged to apply for a grant, for a, a fellowship uh, in nutrition at Rockefeller University in New York City. And so I left medical school after two years to formally study nutrition, uh, every aspect of it, which was um, you know, fat cells and neuropeptides and refeeding and satiety. And, you know, back then it was called chromosome walking with these Zucker fatty rats. You'd have little lean rats and these huge, huge, big rats. Most difficult job in science, getting two obese Zucker fatty rats to mate. <laughs> it's very, there's not enough cheese and candles and music. But, but the candles didn't people, work. Uh, yeah, but you get the right chow, everything happens. <laughs> and um, so that opened my eyes to a much bigger world. And after I left the fellowship, went back to Missouri, but knew that I wanted 
to practice in um to, to further train in a place where I could do sort of an integrated MD a, a postdoc PhD. And so UCLA gave me that opportunity, and I went to UCLA and I did a, a um, you know a fast track of internal medicine oncology, and and then started started a PhD after fellowship at UCLA in molecular biology. And after a year of that, realized that is not what I want to do. And I am not a great scientist. Mm. I'm a really good clinician, but I don't have the patience to be at the bench all the time. And so from there, I sort of transitioned into clinical research and then went into private practice, still as UCLA faculty. And then between the years 2002 and 2006, I worked with a group in the U.S. to help build an outpatient private-based clinical research network. And the guys who started that had an opportunity in Singapore. I mean, we had gone from like three sites to 30 sites in four years. Wow. And the guys who started it said, do you want to go to Singapore? So I'm like, of course I do. You know, I told my <laughs> wife, we're, you know, walking around the, we live in next to UCLA in Westwood, California. I'm in private practice for five years with kids who are six and eight. And, um, of course, you're going to just pick everything up and go to Singapore for two years. And right. my wife really thought, like, that's a pipe dream. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to shatter his dreams and just say no, because somewhere else in this process, somebody's going to say that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so it just it worked. And we came out here for two years and, and we loved it. I built uh, a center in Singapore. The second year, we built a much bigger center in Shanghai. And then we hit the 2008 financial crisis. And the partner said, great idea, bad timing, come home. And my wife and I said, great idea, bad timing, we're going to stay. Mm. And I joined another group in Singapore at that time, and a multidisciplinary group. And I was with them for a few years and helped build an uh, outpatient cancer center for them. And we flipped that to, a, to another company. And that was 2011. And I didn't want to work for the other company. So I opened my own practice, Tucker Medical. You know, didn't have any other special names. I'm kind of a foreigner. I just might as well use my name in the practice. And it was me and two nurses. And a couple of things, before I tell you about where Tucker Medical went, around that time, 2010, 2011, I had it in my head that I had to go to this place called Singularity University in Palo Alto. Have you ever heard of Singularity? No. So Singularity is not a real university. It's like a virtual, uh, physical and virtual meeting space. But the whole premise is about exponential thinking. Okay. You know, if you take two steps and, you know, two steps and two steps and two steps, you've only gone eight. But when you go two, four, eight, 16, that's exponential. And most people get this when you talk about thumb drives, you know, or the size of your, you have a JPEG, uh, you know, and how uh, that's exponential thinking that your computing power grows, you know, doubles every 18 months. And so I began to think both, how can exponential technologies, like, you know, everything that is tele-based or wearable tech, how could that be integrated into healthcare? And at the same time, I was at the annual oncology meetings in Chicago, and I went to a, a session by World Health that talked about cancer prevention. And at that time, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, you, the real drivers of cancer, to those who know, are tobacco, infections, 
you know, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, H. pylori, HIV, uh, chlamydia, HPV, all of that, plus, um, you know, plus the smoking. And there was a, li a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of lip service was being given to diet and lifestyle. But I left that session thinking about prevention. And I was walking into the, uh, you know, into the hall at any of these giant conferences. And I felt like I was swimming upstream. All the docs were sort of in suits and all the drug reps and pharma people were in suits and everybody's going and, and I don't begrudge them, but it's like everyone was finishing the day and going out for their convention steak dinner. Right. And, and I, I just thought if we could get a little bit of that money into prevention, that's the only way we're going to win. Because as much as I'm an optimist and, and, and really believe that you should never say never, um, the, I have a lot of trouble conceptually curing cancer with molecularly targeted therapies that, that, that we can spend more and we do make advances and people live longer and better, but I don't see all that money going to cure. Very few things we've cured in, in oncology. And we, we've, we've done a really good job. I, I don't want to beat up on my colleagues and I think the advancements exist, but if you could just prevent that's, that's where it all came together. So that was scale and prevention and my own knowledge of, you know, my, my knowledge of basic science and still interest in genomics, a complete obsession with wearable technology and gadgets from, you know, Fitbits to, you know, scales and sleep. And I used to do triathlons and I, I, anything worth doing is worth measuring is, is, you know, the famous saying. And so that all synergized for me in Singapore. I mean, that story of how I got here and, and then how we've just built on it as a, you know, a traditional conventional medical practice that does lifestyle medicine as much as it does conventional medicine. That's sort of the long answer. I'll shut up now. Wow. No, but I, I get so excited because I, I feel like, you know, in the medical community, we're not exponential thinkers. We're not innovators and i don't know what holds us back but we've done a couple of shows on how innovation needs to be well adopted like so i get super excited when i hear you talking about the ideas of using wearables and we'll talk about continuous glucose monitors like so much of the technologies that out there and right why aren't we applying this to to think about prevention to think about optimizing to think about personalizing approaches to health it's out there Yes. You know what I mean? You know, optimizing is the key because something in medicine says, you know, here's your glucose value and here's the range mm -hmm. and use the hemoglobin A1C even easier. Normal A1C should be like 4.5 to 5.6 and diabetic range in the U.S. is pre-diabetic 5.7 five, to 6.4. So if you have a, a five, if you have a 4.9, that's a really good score and it's normal. And if you have a 5.6, that's also normal, but it's not as good as a 4.9. Mm -hmm. And so I ask patients all the time, if they're, you know, if they're teenagers come home and they say, mom, I got, I'm taking all these courses and I got a C in every course. I'm normal. <laughs> you know, my mom would not be happy with me coming home with straight C's and oh saying that's God. normal. Yeah, you know, straight A, straight C doesn't matter. It's in the normal range. Yeah. So there's an optimal range, and and that can be personalized. Um, mm -hmm. That can be objectified, and it can be personalized. And you need data for that. 
A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so maybe we could talk about Tucker Medical, exactly what you guys are able to do, because I think that's some sexy ass shit. But also you got an appreciation with all of your training about metabolic health. And, you know, we're, we're talking to cancer today. And what, what are the links that you've seen in your career? Like, why should we care? So I, you know, I, I like to joke, you know, I like to tease that I dropped out of medical school to do this fellowship. I, I didn't really drop out. But um, when I went to Rockefeller, it was pretty intense about energy metabolism and human behavior. That that's really the formal sort of title of the fellowship. And the, the simple fact is I tell people everything I learned was wrong. And it was, it was tattooed on my brain that it was energy in, energy out. It was the caloric hypothesis of, of obesity. And, and, and it was wrong. Um, it, it really was wrong. So uh, I think that calories do matter. You can't ignore the concept of the calorie. But the reason that energy in, energy out fails is very simple. If, if one believes that you know, I've got a basal metabolic rate of 3000 and I want to lose weight. So I put myself on 2000 a day for three months. You know, that's going to be a 90,000 calorie deficit that can convert into so many kilos of weight and it should just work. If you control everything, if you could have a strict environment, it should just work. And the reality is it doesn't work because if you put me on a 2000 calorie meal every day, I would ask, does it matter if it's 2,000 calories, you know, of, you know, wild caught salmon or 2,000 calories of olive oil or 2,000 calories of sugar or 2,000 calories of kerosene, right? And so it's not the calories that matter as much as the source of the calories. And, and we were, were a hormonal metabolic hot mess that when you put stuff in us, we respond. It's not just going to the, you know, to the station and filling up with petrol. You, you have to look at the source of the energy, and, and that's what, what drives everything. So that was wrong. When did, I, when did my, my switch flip? I have to credit um, you know, Bob Lustig and Gary Taubes, you know, just, just good public writing about this impending pandemic um, of obesity and diabetes. And, and when you really spend the time to look at the, you know, the alternative hypothesis, the, uh, the insulin hypothesis, it makes a lot of sense. And, and you begin to see, you start to connect the dots. And those dots would be, my, my worldview became based on that. We have a pandemic of obesity and diabetes, of overweight and pre-diabetes. For the purpose of discussion, I don't even consider those to be diseases. I consider them those to be outcomes from behavior. Those outcomes drive the majority of heart disease, stroke, and cancer, along with Alzheimer's, uh, a lot of autoimmune disease, fatty liver, of course. And it's the, those are people don't really die of obesity, they die of the complications of obesity. And so that intermediate step, and then that worldview says, all right, if most of us, and for everything that I would say, I'm going to talk sort of about the 80-20 principle. There Love are it. exceptions, right? 
yeah, there's exceptions. This is not a global view, but it is a general view. I mean, I'll talk about, if, you know, we can talk about genetics and cancer and lifestyle and cancer. There's always some extremes. But if we talk about 80% of the problem, then what we're saying is for most people, they should be a lean phenotype or at least not an obesogenic phenotype. And how do we, my joke is there are 10,000 books written on how to lose weight, but there's only one book on how to get fat and you have a copy. Did you know that? It's that called right? medical physiology. <laughs> <laughs> right? Medical physiology tells you that, that the prime driver of creation of fat is insulin. So if insulin's driving fat, what's driving insulin? Blood glucose. If blood glucose is elevated, what's driving that? Predominantly hyper processed food and hyper processed food, carbohydrates, fruits, juices, excess sugar, added sugar. I think there's a strong role to discuss sleep and uh, circadian disruption, as well as the role of exercise. There are a lot of ways to manipulate insulin. And we advocate not for a low carb or low glucose lifestyle. We advocate for a low insulin lifestyle. Yes. And so, so that's really what that worldview is. And to me, that's the short form from reading all three of Gary's books or Jason's books or Lustig's books, everyone out there is writing these great books and experiences, collections of you know, real case series to anecdotes. And what they're pointing out is that process drives the disease that the author is interested in. Mm. If it's an Alzheimer's book, they're going to get back to a low-carb diet. If it's a cancer book, it's going to get back to a low-carb diet. Uh, I don't care if you're a vegetarian or a carnivore. I don't care if you're, you know, once a, one meal a day or fasting for one, three, seven days. I don't, I don't care what name you put on your diet. If it gives you success by reducing your body fat and reducing your insulin, you're on the right diet for you. That's, that's the way to look at it, in my opinion. Wow. No. And, but it's the key theme there though, is how insulin is driving a lot of disease, a lot of inflammation and right. insulin resistance. And so just to be as blunt as possible, like in your, like as an oncologist, you're seeing direct ties to, to, to patients either with worsening outcomes or uh, like what's your, what do you see at the, on the front lines? Before you get to the front lines, you sort of start with the population level. Sure. And obesity is now tagged or is, e is either or about to become the number one cause of preventable cancer. Wow. And, and so, you know, how does obesity do it? It's through insulin and chronic inflammation. In our own experience in the office, we, we take a personalized approach for patients. We take them through what I would call standard therapy, conventional therapy, guidelines-based, international, U.S.-style treatment. Uh, for example, stage one, two, three, breast cancer, you're going to come in, you know, the story is always the same. I felt a lump. I had a mammogram. I got a biopsy. A surgeon, you know, they did surgery. And now I'm here to make sure it doesn't come back. And in those stage one, two, three patients, 
um, realize that's a high risk group where you could begin to study these ideas. And, and what, what we give them is the appropriate chemotherapy, hormone therapy, targeted therapy, straight out of the guidelines. And, and, and you, if you do that today, following US guidelines, you should have your five-year cure rate for stage one and two should be 98, 99% basically. You should have only 1% relapse stage one and two if you follow the guidelines in the US. For stage three, it's more like a 85% cure rate, so a 15% fail rate. We offer all of our patients from the beginning and along their treatment course because you can't, you, you usually can't get someone in the throes of chemotherapy to change their diet. Um, they, they want to, but they might be told by their best friend, you need to do the banana diet or you need to eat Himalayan salt or, you know, there's just a lot going on because you got to deal with the word cancer. And, and, you know, if you're told you have cancer, you likely now have post-traumatic stress disorder mm. that you, 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 it just changes your worldview. It's like stepping on a mine. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a frightful thing that is really, really impossible to erase for many. But when the time is right, we start to talk to the patient about how diet impacts risk of cancer and how we always remind them, you've already seen the surgeons, you're cured. Okay. Statistically, we understand 1% fail rate or something, but you have to, I would choose to view you as being cured and you're taking all of this extra medicine and extra effort as an insurance policy. Mm. Now, if you go to those stage three women, it's 85% are cured, uh, taking all the right medicines, which means if you take, the the patient will come in and say, is there anything else I can do? And when they're ready for that, when they say that, the answer is yes, there's a lot you can do. That if we believe that reducing alcohol and smoking and, and getting to a lean body weight and insulin is a bad thing for ever getting cancer in the first place, why don't we try doing this with you? Because you're at higher risk than the rest of the population because you already had cancer once. It is so much easier. I mean, if you, if, if a, you know, 45 year old, uh, obese gentleman walks into my office, he's a, you know, a banker, a lawyer, a CEO type. It's like, I just don't feel good anymore. I feel tired. Uh, I'm overweight. I, you know, I have impotence. Um, you know, I don't make decisions well, so what's wrong. And I'm like, you got to change your diet. And they're like, Oh, can't you just give me drugs? You know, yeah. trying to talk to people who are overweight, obese, not who haven't kind of bottomed out, you know, mm-hmm. cancer is metabolically bottoming out for some people so that they're really, they're ready to make that change. They're motivated. But when you talk to people who've had cancer, it's preaching to the choir. They're mm-hmm. like, what else can I do? They're like, can I, you know, okay, I'll change my diet. What else can I do? Okay. I'll meditate. What else can I do? I'll take these supplements. What else can I do? I'll take metformin. They are, you know, they're willing to do a lot to make sure this thing doesn't come back. And we have to guide them about the pros and cons of all of these different post-treatment interventions that not only reduce the risk of cancer coming back, but are actually reducing the risk of any chronic disease 
Mm. I'm trying to do an end around on, I want to, you know, reduce obesity and diabetes in the world. And I've just started by doing it in patients with a history of breast cancer Mm. because they have the same, you know, 88% of North America is obese, overweight, diabetic, or pre-diabetic. Poor metabolic And that would mirror the same people who are getting breast and prostate cancer. And so I just want to, I'm going to tackle overall metabolic health and, you know, wellness, whatever that means by doing it in this high risk group of people who are highly motivated. That's the key. Yeah. And what are you seeing? Like, and you know what I mean? Like they're highly motivated and like, are you seeing results? Are they coming back saying, I feel like shit or like, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, we see results. Um, We, we measure results in a few different ways. Quite objectively, uh, we keep a running database of breast cancer patients, uh, stage one through three, uh, who I have taken care of from diagnosis to date. Uh, Singapore gets a lot of medical travelers. So if you got half your treatment in the Philippines and then came to me, you're not in the database. People that, that I know from diagnosis going forward. And in that database, excuse me, in that database, I have 103 women so far, stage one through three, with a median follow-up of about five and a half years. And we, we have no relapses, first of all, full stop. None of them stage one through three. But as I told you, you know, stage one and two, you shouldn't really have any relapses, 1%, even with triple negative breast cancer and, you know, more aggressive forms. But... Um, we have, and, and in the U.S., two-thirds of patients present with stage one, two, and I think about 20% stage three. But in my practice in Asia, where there's fewer mammograms and people have less access to care, uh, it's 50-50. So about 51 of our patients in the database are stage three, and none of them have relapsed either. So, I mean, I think bad news could strike any day. Um, you know, I knock wood, but so far not having a single breast cancer relapse in 10 years, I think it's because of the way we personalize the post-treatment care so that it's been emphasized what's really important, not the, not the process, not the name. It's not the so-and-so diet. It's whatever you're doing, measure your insulin. Get some data. Make sure that your belief, your belief system is is giving you the outcome you want in that sense. Um, and we, the other way we measure it. So I mean, that's a pretty you know standard medical case series measurement. The other way we measure it is the number of referrals, because once the patients understand this, and my interest in doing primary care if for prevention of all chronic disease. If, if my patient has breast cancer at 40, now her older sister is at higher risk for breast cancer by definition. And so we often end up doing secondary prevention in the patients and primary prevention in their siblings and parents and children. Um, and we encourage it because if you're going to change to a low-carb lifestyle, it's better to do it as a team than to be sort of, you know, put as an outcast, you know, if the husband and, you know, if if the whole family's going low carb, it's a whole lot easier. So we, I would say that that's one of the measures of success as well. 
and probably a third measure because we do this with prostate cancer all day long. Um, and, and prostate cancer, we don't use as much chemo, but prostate cancer and heart disease um, are, are like symptoms and signs for each other. They run hand in hand due to the same inflammation insulin pathway, again, 80%. And so despite the fact that we may be providing hormone blockade, castrating therapy for men with prostate cancer for one year or less, um, they come out of that in better shape than they started because now they, again, it's that wake up call. Um, and, and, you know, once you start getting guys to bodybuild and you start getting them to, to run and walk and, you know, eat less carbs and drink less alcohol, you, you turn these guys into, you know, you know, Greek gods and they're like, they're, they're just so happy that they have this new leash on life. It's pretty amazing. I'm getting really excited, Stephen, because what I like about the approach to it and what you said is how much of an amplifier some of this is like that element of primary prevention, right? Like the fact that that person's sister is seeing the results, their family seeing the results, there's buy-in, you know what I'm saying? Because right now in our culture, we don't talk about this enough. I don't know what it is. We're in a heightened pandemic when metabolic health is clearly, it is screaming that this is an yeah. important element of, uh, of outcomes. And we still don't talk about this. So whatever we can do to amplify this message, as you said, talk about getting people uh, like prevention is the yeah. money, is the key. You know what I'm saying? So I think one of the big drivers to, to create that human megaphone is leveraging patients. Uh, let me take you a step it. back. You ever read an Amazon review? Yeah, 100%. You ever written one? Almost never. Right. Okay. Who are these people writing the reviews? <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, and some of them are really good. I yeah. mean, that, that's, you know, I write on Quora sometimes and like to give back. and But it's like, wow. Or people giving advice. You know, I can't get my... Uh, uh, AirPods to connect to my MacBook and you go, you know, and there's, there's like people and you get points and you get stars, right? You become like a brigadier general of advice of reviews on Amazon. Okay. Trusted, verified reviewer. We can do the same with patients by helping them understand their skills at advocacy. That, wow. that encouraging them to share their stories, to share what they know and support them to say, you know, to teach them that this is not rocket science. You do not need a medical degree to give people common sense. And, and, and so, but, but what the layperson needs is to know that we have their back and that, you know, when they're, you know, what's complicated, what's not complicated, when you should sort of, you know, if you, if you don't know what's going on, just say, you should, you know, here's the way I see it, but Dr. Tucker or one of the other doctors or his nurses or his nutritionist, any of them, you know, shoot them an email. Yeah, and it's no problem. Um, but it's, I, ha- I have a lot of patients that have become advocates and, and some patients who've actually joined our practice as coaches. So, and, and I have always loved, and this more, more people should do this. Once you really have a, a successful patient and a, a, you know, a trusted patient, somebody who's motivated, you, 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 there's people who are 
you know, smart about how they communicate. Uh, they're natural communicators. And what you do is you buddy them up with newly diagnosed patients. Yes. And so, I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a, a, this is just brings, just really brings joy to my, to my face. Um, patient I'm taking care of for five years. Uh, she's very young, had breast cancer in her thirties, a kind of an aggressive breast cancer. I didn't treat her for the first year. She lived in another country. She got all the right treatments, got on hormone therapy, moved to Singapore, um, did two plus years of her hormone therapy, and then said, you know, we banked all these eggs and embryos and can I stop my hormones and, and have a baby? And I said, absolutely. There's great literature and support for this. We'll get everybody on board. And she delivered just a beautiful baby and went right back on her hormone therapy and, and then continued for a total of five years of standard hormone therapy. And she was in my office uh, about a month ago and wanted to uh, ask, could she stop the hormone therapy? She's still got a bunch of embryos left over. <laughs> I want to mm. do it again. And you know, now she, she's still young. And I'm like, by all means. Mm. Now, one hour before, I saw a new patient with breast cancer who was in the exact same situation. And it was seeing me as a second opinion because the, the first two oncologists that she saw said, don't even bother. You don't have enough eggs or embryos. You should just do your chemo. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're 40, don't even think about it. Your life is at risk. And she came to me and I said, nope, you can do this. It's going to take, not have the baby, but in this case, it was, you know, egg stimulation. It was going to take four weeks. It's going to delay us. But I said, you can do this. This is fine. You won't be worse than somebody who had a post-op infection and couldn't do chemo right away. And so she, we're giving her that advice. But those two women in the office on the same day, hmm. and I hooked them up, not to not just let the new patient know I'm supportive, but I'm supportive. And here's a shining example of how you can do it. Wow. And, and connecting people like that, you can do it with breast cancer, with weight loss, you know, with, you know, running your first marathon, you get a, a shadow, a buddy, somebody who's been there that, you know, that's not a doctor and not part of the system. I think that that's invaluable. That makes your megaphone. That is, a, I mean, I was getting so excited hearing about this too, because, you know, we've done a couple of shows, like one of our most popular shows actually was with, with a doc that um, he himself seeing the impact of, uh, of metabolic health on, on COVID patients end up losing 30 pounds. And this just resonated so much with people. And that light bulb came off. It's like, hey, man, when people can be, a, a, it's a relatable story. When that patient can tell you what the experience was and know the, the intricacies of what it will take to get you better, how powerful is yeah. that? Not Get past the white coat, uh, you should do this, but my doctor told me to do this. Whereas you got that relatable cat that's willing to yeah. like connect with you. You get that community sense too. It's brilliant. Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. So I love connecting people. And I know you like innovation, but in a sense, there's a, there's a better way to get to success quickly. And it's, I would say it's integration. You know, I don't have to go invent a way to communicate to patients. I just need to integrate, you know, patients with each other right. and make communities, uh, you know, and that's really, you know, it gets, it's very, 
you know, it, it's very touchy feely. It's very holistic. And I, when I say that, I always want to follow that up with, but I like genetics and radiation and <laughs> drugs, you know, that I, I'm of two minds. There's the sciencey technology, but, but at the end of the day, it's community, it's support. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke about it's hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's being true to yourself, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, don't make some, don't let somebody change your personality for a better outcome. Mm-hmm. You embrace your personality. Um, you know, don't, we don't want to create new fights for individuals. Uh, that yeah. always made as an aside, somebody says, you know, my daughter comes in and says, my dad's got a bad attitude. Tell him he should be more positive. I'm like, no. He can own it, you know? <laughs> he's already changing his diet for you, and he's already doing this. If he wants to be a curmudgeon, let him be a curmudgeon. Yeah. He doesn't need more things to fight. That's for sure. But, you know, what I'm thinking, though, Stephen, is like you're saying, like, it's the softer stuff. But um, I bet you, like, you and I have both seen the, the patients that have um, – like, I don't have the studies to prove this, but have that more authentic approach that have that sense of community that have a, that positivity, they do better. And I bet you, if you were to track their, um, their glucose, like if you did a continuous glucose monitoring with them or their, mm-hmm. because of uh, like how it's related to stress, I bet you we'd even see some biological impacts. Like, you know what I'm saying? Without question. So I think, so there's two things there and I want to, come back to you hold on to that we were talking we're going to talk about i guess personality resilience and glucose response Mm -hmm. and then but in a bigger picture there's some famous studies uh, i believe from mayo clinic in uh i think even in the 60s where people were assessed um with with the tools of the day for personalities and personality traits of optimism or pessimism. Mm-hmm. And they followed these people for something like 30 years. And optimists live longer than pessimists. Okay? It's about a three-year gain, but it was very clear. Now, there's dual interpretations there. Because is it that everyone's supposed to live the length of a pessimist life, but optimists get three years? Or is everyone supposed to live the optimist life and pessimists cut off three years, years, right? But there is a difference. And there's also studies to look at. And this does get back to the success and probably some of the responses. There are other studies in psychology where individuals have been interviewed after they've lost, um, I think it was an arm or a leg. It might have been vision or sight also, but obviously a traumatic accident. And they're interviewed and people who win the lottery win like more than a million dollars. And so they interview these people sort of, a you know, when it happens and a couple of years later. And whether you win the lottery or lose your arm, equal numbers of people say it was the best thing that ever happened to them. And equal numbers say it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. And so that's mindset, right? And so I do think that where it plays a role is in the stress response, because if insulin is the villain in the story, what we're talking about is the degree of a fight or flight response. Because, you know, I said, yeah, food is a big driver of glucose, which is a driver of insulin. But fight or flight, 
you get this, you know, walking down the road and there's a, there's a cobra and a scorpion and, and a tiger all waiting for you. And you're like, I got to get out of here. Um, or I'm going to fight. No matter what happens, you're going to crank out a ton of adrenaline and cortisol, and that's going to release a lot of glucose. And then whether you fight or not, you're going to have to dispose of the glucose and your insulin will go up. And so the stress response, if you're under chronic stress, you're going to have more, you're going to have excessive glucose and excessive adrenal hormones and aggressive, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, higher levels of cortisol, which are always going to raise blood glucose. And then you get into the vicious cycle. Let's say the modern, you know, fight or flight, uh, chronic stresses is my, you know, uh, if you have a child with leukemia and it's an 18 month battle, you're having a tax audit, you're having a divorce. And so your sleep is disrupted. You're anxious or worried for, for good things or bad things. You know, getting married is just as stressful as getting divorced. Buying a home is just as stressful as, you know, um, selling a home. So stress is stress ignores the good or the bad. When markets crash, if you if you're an investor, that's bad news. But when they crash, if you've been shorting everything, it's good news. So, you know, the action doesn't matter, it's the response. And so when you have all those hormones going up, you set off the vicious cycle that starts to create obesity. You because of the stress, you might reach for, you know, a bag of chips, an extra beer, some, you know, easy comfort food. That's going to change your dopamine, neuropeptide, galanine, you know, uh, leptin and, and ghrelin. And you start getting into this vicious cycle where now everything is changing because of these chronic stress responses. But I, to really get deeper, what do you think about the microbiome? Do you think that that, I mean, I wonder how much of that from childhood influences stress responses. I got to tell you. And, you know. Sorry to interrupt. I just got, I got, the more I learn about the microbiome, the more fascinating it is. And the more I think we need to have a, uh, a deeper appreciation and knowledge for what it all oh, yeah. means. It's anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. No, no, but you're, yeah. So it's, there's an article, I, I'll, I'll find the title for it, but the short of it was recently breast cancer outcomes associated with uh, microbiome, you know, sort of phenotype and um, like bad dreams, anxiety about recurrence. So it's tying the microbiome and the glucose response. And, you know, you know one of the subterms in the microbiome, you're going to love this one, the psychobiome. <laughs> how the microbiome affects your brain, yep. you know, and, and, and there's a direct connection between the, the, in the gut brain axis, the vagus nerve we now know literally can conduct bacteria neuropeptides from the brain to the stomach. Wow. And, and so I do think that the, this stress response, we see it in patients, positivity helps and positivity comes from people, I'll call it authority, but people that the patient respects who support the patient. Mm -hmm. 
when the patient tells me, you know, doc, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the diet, this, and the reason I think I'm doing great is really, you know, it's not the diet or the drugs, it's prayer that the doctor, you know, the patient comes in and says, I believe that, you know, prayer is what's getting me through this. And there might be a lot of doctors out there in the world who will just smile. And a lot of doctors sometimes will say, you know, well, you know, there's, there's no evidence. There's been no randomized controlled trial of prayer compared to, you know, like disdain on the outcomes <laughs> in breast cancer. But if you tell the patient, if you're supportive of the patient that to say, I don't know the impact of prayer myself, but it sounds like it's really working for you. Being positive about the efforts the patient takes doubles the, the value of the effort itself. Because if I say prayer is stupid, then the patient's going to be anxious and worried and, you know, troubled and conflicted. And that's not helping anyone. Mm. So, so I think that you need to be able to, you need to be able to listen to the patient and be supportive to the degree, as long as something's not harming the patient that you obviously know of, that that's really the key, but you still can phrase it in a supportive way, such as I'm glad you've been proactive in doing more things to reduce your risk. Exactly. Like why not promote that positive mindset? You know, like they're going through the patients are going through enough already. As you as you mentioned, the diagnosis of cancer alone can give you some PTSD, you know, and to have that kind of um, support from your doc, from your from your care team to say, hey, you know what? You, yeah. you think this might work? It's not going to cause harm as far as you could see. Why not? Why not have that little sense right. of hope or, or certainly be neutral? But, yeah. you know, and this has been one of the, the drivers of the practice is that when for, for years, patients will go, oncology patients will ask their doctor about a diet and the doctor will say, there's no evidence that diet is going to impact, you know, your, your outcome, that they just, you know, dismiss it out of hand. And, and that's not true. Um, you know mm -hmm. how doctors love to say there's no evidence from randomized clinical trials, which or just say there's no evidence without teaching the patient there are levels of evidence, right? right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you can you can be supportive by not being negative. Right, I, I think that's really important to get across too. Right, and it brings to your point too a little bit about you know the nutrition. Uh, like the yeah. trials or the like the studies that are showing benefits like yeah a lot of these are tough to do there hasn't been a ton of rcts but you always got to ask yourself you know we we got evidence has to start from somewhere and right. i do hope that you know with this more awareness of how diet can affect outcomes um like this is something we'll be we'll, we'll be doing more of did we uh when when you were doing some research and we when we were emailing, did you come across any of the information about fasting and cancer treatment? This has also got me excited. No, let's like this is on the agenda, my friend. Like let's you wanna, you I mean, let's, let's jump let's jump on it. 
because we, we've been doing yeah. t- like we had Jason Fung on the show too about the benefits of fasting and Megan Ramos and and uh, <laughs> you know I I'm a big I'm I personally been doing it for about three years and um, but um, the idea of it affecting count- cancer outcomes is sexy <laughs> AF so um, Stephen yeah maybe we'll talk about it's that it's incredible absolutely incredible stuff so fasting uh, you have to go back to the sort of the basics um, of why insulin and glucose are bad in cancer and that starts off with this you know famous scientist uh, dr. Warburg uh, Otto Warburg who was a biochemist and got a Nobel Prize in 1925 for energy metabolism and whenever you hear energy metabolism dear listener we're talking about the mitochondria so the the powerhouse inside the cell you know, a cell is like a, a balloon that's got a smaller balloon inside filled with DNA and even smaller balloons inside. They're called mitochondria, which generate energy. And the mitochondria might actually be really old, old, eons old bacteria that got fused into these cells and, and sort of symbiotic. But that's where we make energy to, to do stuff, to do anything. And so what Warburg observed, what's called the Warburg effect, is that cancer cells always make energy in a very ineffective, polluted kind of way. So the, and that, that's called, you know, um, through glycolysis. Glycolysis. That Warburg said that cells make energy, cancer cells make energy through glycolysis. Healthy cells always make it through something called oxidative phosphorylation. We consider that to be very energy efficient and uh, you get a lot of energy that way. But whether you have oxygen or not, Warburg saw that cancer cells were making energy from glycolysis. Now, Warburg said with that observation, he hypothesized that the primary cause of cancer was this change in cellular energy metabolism and that everything else carcinogens and infections and genetics were secondary causes to cancer. But the, the, the first harm, the first, you know, foul was going to be this change in energy metabolism, that the cells are kind of addicted to glucose and they're pretty inefficient. Now, bring that forward to fasting. Cancer cells have this high metabolism and inflexibility when it comes to source of energy. But healthy cells are much more metabolically flexible. That a healthy cell has a, when presented with a stress, can say a stress like no glucose around, fasting for 24, 48 hours, that the healthy cell will slow its growth rate, it'll adapt. So when you fast, what happens is cancer cells, they they don't change. They just keep running at a high speed while the healthy cells slow down. They go into a protective mode. They, they go into a maintenance and a repair mode. They're adaptive. So now you've got these two groups that are one is responding, adapting healthy, and one is just like going full tilt. And then you throw the chemotherapy in. So a second hit. So the healthy cells are actually protected because they're not replicating so much and chemotherapy doesn't intertwine and affect them. You get less DNA damage and more what's called oxidative stress. But the cancer cells, they're, they're still moving at high speed. 
they're unstable because they haven't had their glucose for 24 hours. And then you hit them with chemotherapy and you get even more DNA damage and oxidative stress, more benefit, what doctors call more efficacy. Now, that's the philosophy. And that's been studied um, you know, very well. Probably the key guy for so much of this is a guy named Walter Longo uh, out of USC. And he's looked at this as these fasting paradigms, um, traditional fasting, just what would be considered water fast, but also something called a fasting mimicking diet or FMD. But either way, what, what Longo and uh, his clinical partner, Tanya Dorf, uh, a medical oncologist who uh, I used to work with for a long time, Tanya's an amazing oncologist, um, but they were able to do the studies in people to show that fasting was safe. And one of the first studies, which was straight fasting, took chemotherapy patients and they had them fast for up, you know, 24 to 48 hours before the chemo and up to 24 hours after the chemo. Um, then they, you know, and so that, that was great. We've been using that. But I'll tell you what really, you know, shook me, what is so amazing, um, out of all these reports about the safety of fasting during chemotherapy, there was a report earlier this year that the fasting mimicking diet, in addition to chemotherapy and breast cancer, provided better clinical results. Wow. And, and the way that this was done is that these were women who had tumors in their breast and got chemotherapy before surgery. So we kind of know when we give this neoadjuvant chemo, like, you know, we can see the tumor shrink or not shrink. And that helps us, you know, with prognosis and, and you know, futuristic, pro, you know, uh, decision making. They, half the patients did the fasting mimicking diet. And half the patients did a standard diet. There's about 130 people, women with breast cancer, age 50, all stages two and three. And they got hard chemo, real chemo. Okay. And the goal was to look at the, you know, uh, evaluate the diet, the fasting on toxicity and benefit as measured by tumor response. And, and the, the simple answer is you, if you followed the diet, you were significantly more likely to have all of your tumor disappear. A pathological complete response, which is highly predictive of long-term cure. Mm -hmm. um, statistically, that was the, the odds ratio for you know, a statistician. You're four times more likely to have your tumor disappear with the fasting mimicking diet in this study than if you didn't. I mean, that's, that shit. was just, to me, that's enough. And so yeah. we, we've, you know, we've actually been incorporating fasting and variations on fasting, whether it's FMD or straight fasting, whether it's weekly or every three week fasting with chemo. Um, we've incorporated that now for about two years. Mm -hmm. And all I could say is that anecdotally, um, we, see, we see a lot less toxicity from chemo. We are seeing good pathologic responses in the breast cancer patients who get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But I'll tell you what's most amazing, and based on this last paper, you can get rid of high-dose steroids before chemotherapy when you do the fasting-mimicking diet. You have to sort of make sure that the patient does well in the first cycle, but 
as long as they do well in the first cycle, you can remove the steroids. And, you know, um, we use 20 milligrams of dexamethasone for, for the lay audience. That is a huge slug of steroids. It is a, it's a whiskey bottle of steroids that you would have to take, you know, either weekly or every three weeks. And that's going to raise your, your glucose. It's going to change all of your metabolic health. Your mood. So getting rid of the steroids, mood, weight gain, oh. mm-hmm. diabetes, obesity, all of that. Yeah. So fasting works. Oh, wow. and, and, and this is something we have data for. That's the beauty. We really have data for this. Um, yes, it's, it's cool. This is exciting. So not only, I mean, initially they're showing safety in terms of the, the having that approach that there's no negative sequelae. Less tox- yeah, no and, negative, less toxicity. Yeah, and so like, wow, like why not? Like from what I'm hearing from you, and like I haven't dove into the the papers, but it doesn't seem like there's a if the if like a patient's willing, like there's a, like an obvious downside to them trying. You know, yeah. just just another and, thing in the arsenal, you know? Right. And it doesn't always have to be precisely like Dr. Longo's FMD. It could easily be, you know, even if you can do 12 hours before and 12 hours after, mm. you know, we, we, we support you, we push you, um, you know, we're, we've got, and we have a team, you know, we have a bunch of nutritionists, our nurses, we've all played with fasting in the office in the sense of we wouldn't push someone to offer someone a lifestyle intervention that we haven't road tested ourselves. Right. Uh, that said, I, we, I haven't volunteered for chemotherapy, <laughs> uh, but, but I've definitely done the fasting. Wow. And the, the flip sides also, there's data for the flip side. P- diabetics who have poorly controlled glucose through chemotherapy mm-hmm. are almost never going to get a pathologic complete response. So wow. there was a second paper this year that on um, the effect of diabetes and fasting glucose on neoadjuvant breast cancer. And the flip result was seen. Those with the highest glucose, zero pathologic remissions. Jesus Christ. This, I mean, this is what I'm saying. This stuff needs to be like really amplified because it's, once again, there are interventions that are not costly. They are relatively simple and could have a lot of bang for your buck. And this might be a tough question, Stephen, but are you seeing anything like also related not only to fasting, but any dietary, like specific diets, like you choose, whether it's carnivore, plant-based, whether it's, uh, um, you know, um, what's, why am I brain farting? Um, so I'm going to, yeah. why am I? Why am I we, we can come up with more. Sorry, what, I'm gonna, know, I'll, ask, I'll ask the question again. We do the zone, we do the Mediterranean. <laughs> I don't know why I brain farted there. Um, got, I mean, there's so oh, many. Did I forget to say keto? That's what I was going to say. Keto. Yeah, like keto, yeah, keto. Modified keto, dirty keto, <laughs> bulletproof. Yeah, right? like, is there, there's like, a million. Was there any, like, any obvious um, evidence that comes to mind? Um, I don't think so for a diet. Yeah. I think that there are, it's interesting, it comes up a lot because there are specific elements of diets that are hot buttons for people. And whether it's, you know, you believe it or not, I mean, you can talk to, uh, you know, so if you read, can't remember his name, but uh, Colin Campbell, okay, uh, the China study which says, you know, basically is a horrible study with, you know, so many variables, so many possible outcomes that it's generally not trustworthy. But 
people will point out certain elements of a diet based on some study. For example, should you eat beef, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, pa- patients come in and patients get things confused. Doctors get things confused because they think, oh, if, I, if I'm going on the keto diet, I better go eat a cow. And like nowhere in the keto diet does it say you have to eat beef, right? Yeah. But that's the thing. You don't, if you're a colon cancer patient, you're a little bit worried about, you know, red meat. Okay. You can be keto with fish and chicken, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, it's people get hot buttons and they, you know, I'm sure you see this. A hot button is fruit. Shouldn't mm-hmm. we be having a lot of fruit? Yeah. No. Fruit is sugar. And it's not the same fruit my grandparents had. There, mm. You know, this stuff is genetically crossed. If you, you ever go to a farmer's market and buy heirloom tomatoes? No. But no, okay. uh, I, 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 mean, I'll be on, I, I don't even know yeah. what that even means. What, but yeah. So heirloom, heirloom, <laughs> tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes are funny looking tomatoes. They're beautiful, different colors with, with sort of white stripes in them. They're very tasty. And people think, oh, I went to the organic farmer's market and I bought these beautiful heirloom tomatoes. And I'm like, that is like buying the Labrador, Labradoodle Chihuahua, you know, breeding, <laughs> you know, freak. That heirloom tomatoes don't grow in nature, okay? <laughs> this is a genetic cross. And it's, it's you know, and I'm not saying, and that, that's what happens is because then people say like, well, are tomatoes good? Like, you know, tomatoes are not good or bad. Cheeseburgers are not good or bad. But a diet that is filled with only cheeseburgers is not good for you. You know, that's really. And even with that statement, I would I would caveat it. Whatever diet gives you solid numbers, low insulin, low glucose, normal liver enzymes, normal ferritin, normal hormones, Whatever and and assuming you're lean, that you know, not skinny, but that you don't have, you know, excess body fat, that's the diet that's good for you. Oh, you know, if you if you feel like you can eat Doritos and Pringles all day long and be healthy, show me the money. You know, that's all I would say. I love it. Yeah. So I'm still caught up on the, especially with COVID (laughs) puppies, the Labradoodle Chihuahua hybrid. Yeah. (laughs) What are you gonna? I heard of a double doodle, a double doodle the other day or something like that. Double doodle. I'm getting my dogs mixed up, but I I, I have no idea what that means. Before we had bulldogs, you know, I love bulldogs. And that's, (laughs) there's still, it's just like, I mean, that there's not a lot of naturalness to to these guys as cute as they are. (laughs) Yeah. I I do hear you. I do like, I do think they're cute. Um, It's, um, but it's it's great what you're saying too, and we try and emphasize as much as much as possible. As you know, n- nothing should be cookie cutter. It's personalized. It should be with the result of having good metabolic profile. For example, good uh, glucose um, um, index. And so, the case for continuous glucose monitor, like or any yeah. evaluation for metabolic health that you like. We're doing a show with. Um, NutriSense and they use and they, they make the case for why at some point in life it's worth having con- continuous glucose monitored. And do you guys routinely use them in your practice, for example? All day long, constantly. Uh, we love continuous glucose monitors uh, because they are, 
that you know in some ways they are the the you know the the wearable tracker the the garmin fitbit uh polar samsung for for metabolism and one of the things about it is yeah it's great for a diabetic to help them understand their diet and drugs and and help reverse diabetes and maybe get them off insulin which we do but i still think the biggest use case is in non-diabetics in uh, healthy adults with mild to moderate metabolic dysfunction because there is no hiding from a glucose meter that your your glucose meter uh, the results from your glucose meter are the um, uh, uh, oh, what do I want you're my turn for the brain fart the uh, uh, the trackers what I mean just from the sky we, oh, your the, GS, not, GPS. Oh, GPS yeah yeah GPS yeah glucose meters glucose meters are GPS for your diet yeah I mean that's really what it is because you might think you're one place or another, but the reality is the glucose meter doesn't lie. Mm. Um, and it's funny because you, you really want to go into invasive tech. Your glucose meter and your phone are in the same place. Your credit card's in the same place. There is no hiding from that. Like, you know, <laughs> well, well, you spent $8.50 at this location at 1 p.m., uh, that's the location of a McDonald's and your glucose meter went up, yep. right? You're, you're like, you're busted. There, you are just busted. There is, there is no snacking. There is no hiding snacking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't hide from your, you know, if you have a girlfriend, you can't hide from her with a GPS any more than you can hide from your dietitian with a glucose meter. Mm. Um, the glucose meter tells everyone what they're doing. It's so easy to use. Uh, we use the Libre as the most common one. I've used the Medtronic device. I've used the Dexcom device. Um, all of them are going to continue to get less expensive, more accurate, more precise, and more personalized. And everyone's different. That what you might learn is if you have a bowl of rice and I have a bowl of rice, we might have two very different glucose responses. And, and that actually gets into something called a, a glucotype. So, and that may be directly related to your microbiome. So which bacteria help you digest carbs, fat, protein, you know, the balance between those bacteria. And I don't think that people need to wear these glucose meters forever. Mm -hmm. and, and people will criticize like, you know, having a Fitbit or a wearable, they'll say, oh, this was pointless. I bought it. Uh, and I put it in my sock drawer after two months. But I would argue that most people who wear a Fitbit for a month thought that walking 5,000 steps or 10,000 steps took so much effort. And then when they had the device on, they realized the actual effort required. Mm -hmm. So you learn something. You don't have to track all the time, but you need to learn what is required to walk 10,000 steps. And I think if you just wear the glucose meter for two weeks and eat your, you know, I would tell patients, we tell patients, wear the glucose meter uh, and go eat anything you want. Live your life, enjoy, eat, ad lib, everything. And they will see the ups and the downs and the craziness of their glucose. Then in the second week, we tell them like fast for, you know, 24 hours, uh, break your fast with oatmeal. Um, you know, have, have a meal of scrambled eggs and bacon and, you know, salmon 
black coffee, but no, um, you know, no breads, no carbs, no juice, and see the difference in your glucose response. That that's it's it's really amazing. Yeah. And and for the patients with diabetes, the patients. I mean, I use in one of my talks. Uh, we had a patient with metastatic breast cancer last year, who uh, was also diagnosed with newly diagnosed florid out of control diabetes at the same time. And during the first six months of her chemotherapy, um, the, the, the chemo, the fasting, and the diabetes reversal plan, we reversed her diabetes, she did the fasting, and at six months, she was in complete remission. Wow. Uh, from metastatic breast cancer. It was absolutely an awesome case. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So the glucose meter is here to stay, for sure. As you mentioned, Stephen, like this is, you really want to get down to personalizing someone's health. You want to know what, what, what sugars impact you more. What, what, and the other thing about it too is how you're going to feel too, right? Like if you know that, yeah. you know, you could see that what you ate had that spike up and down, and then you also felt like crap in the afternoon, wanted a nap, wanted that double espresso from Starbucks. Like, you know, like right. I think there's a lot to be said about that. And, um, and I, for me too, I would love to see the, the impact of, Hey man, I, I did that resistance training that day. Hey, I, I slept like crap the night before. Like what, what is that doing to my, um, Oh yeah. My markers. I'll tell you my, so here's my, my, my favorite tools, glucose meter, mm -hmm. continuous glucose meter. Uh, I don't know if you're, we're going to have video, but aura the ring? aura ring. Nice. Yeah. Love the aura ring. Love the aura ring. Now, most people will know that wearing a dev device to measure your sleep does not change your sleep. <laughs> Potentially just makes you more anxious about your sleep. But the other device that I love that is a game changer for sleep, and, and, I'm, and as an FYI, I'm not on anyone's payroll for any devices mentioned, but um, are you familiar with the Chili Pad? No. Oh, is this oh still like God, for this thing is body temperature or something? Yeah. So it's a thin sheet that you put um, above your mattress, under your, under your sheets, and it cools your bed down to, you know, it's got a huge temperature range. But lowering my bed temperature under the covers mm -hmm. uh, made my heart rate variability go up significantly. Really? Um, better rest, better sleep, more deep sleep. Huh. It was a game changer for me. The combination of, you know, it was very clear the nights that I have any alcohol, my heart rate and HRV and my sleep are horrible. And nights that I don't have any alcohol um, are much, much better. Hmm. And when I combine no alcohol with my chili pad, I'm like Superman. I mean, I just feel unstoppable the next day. Wow. Um, it's it really a game changer. But yeah, glucose meters and aura rings. And, and I still wear my, uh, you know, my Garmin triathlon watch. I find that that's, you know, gives me all the data I need. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's also fun. I once got hearing aids. I got hearing aids to test uh, wearable tech because not people with disability. Mm hmm as we define it today, who get replacement will be the first group of people that actually get augmented. So right now, imagine if my hearing aids can translate, you know, Google translate 27 languages. 
Oh, there are companies that have put the equivalent of a Fitbit and an Alexa in the hearing aid. And, and at that point, now it's, an, it, it's a selective advantage. I was working with someone because there are these little parabolic mics and you can get selectively better hearing. If you want to hear the stock tips at the, you know, New York lunch, you know, yeah. you can, you can put your aids in and point your microphone. But, um, you know, some other time we could talk about augmented eyes, ears, and, you know, actually uh, bionic limbs, prosthetic limbs. Wow. That is, you know, yeah, that is the, the real future. Look at you, Dr. Crazy Tucker, stuff. throwing down all of this, man. Like, <laughs> so much good stuff to talk about. The, um, the one thing I, I for sure want to um, add to this, which I, I forgot to mention earlier, is the like we touched on how obesity is a, is a risk factor but i heard you once comment on for certain cancers if you increase a bmi by x amount you're increasing your risk right. about x amount so I, I i'd love us for just to comment on that briefly if you don't mind sure so i mean that's a, a straightforward study i can send you from the american cancer society I think also the Lancet Global Burden of Health makes a similar reference. And what they're saying is they're, they're trying to document what the relative contribution, what, what are the number of cases of cancer? So maybe there's 100,000 cases um, of uterus cancer. And, and uterine cancer being very hormonally sensitive, they estimate what is the percentage of cases attributable to obesity and also by degree of obesity so that for every point for different cancers and i think uterus might be really high like 13 percent so that for every point above normal bmi you had a 13 percent higher risk of uterus cancer so you know you now what's important for the audience to know is these are all relative risk. So it doesn't mean that, you know, if you are, if you're five point, if it's 13% and you're five points above, you don't have a 65% lifetime risk of uterus cancer. You are 65% more likely than someone who is non-obese to be diagnosed with uterus cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's how that works. And it's, you know, most of the time, you know, it's, um, I can, you know, we'll sort of pause here in a second. It's 13 yeah. types of cancer, uh, obesity. And yeah, so um, yeah, and lots of articles. It, it, 13 is the keyword in that search. Um, and uh, yeah, you have to look into the article for the exact amounts. But for each of those, it's, you know, uh, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, liver cancer, gallbladder, stomach, pancreas, colon, uterus, ovaries, kidneys, myeloma, esophagus, all strongly related to obesity and at, in different degrees where uterus is a, a, you know, a much higher risk and uh, other cancers are somewhat lower risk. But if you go to the ACS article for that, it, that's how it sort of explains yeah, it. But um, not all cancer is obesity related. Uh, you know, leukemias and uh, bone, a lot of bone marrow disorders, 
Um, you know, smoking is probably, you know, overwhelmingly tobacco related, not obesity related. Um, but, uh, but definitely breast cancer, GI cancers, female cancers, highly sensitive to uh, increasing body mass index, obesity, and therefore, in my opinion, insulin. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is the reason why I want to keep bringing this up is, you know, we talk about A20, which is like one of my favorite topics in the world, by the way. I, I, we could jump on that in one day about I'm all like my whole life is about 80-20. But 80-20 of prevention, right, from a yeah. lot of, like for so many yeah. things is just let's improve your metabolic health. And I'm a, like, just to give you context, I'm an intensivist. I don't see people like yeah. I see them at the end of the, the disease courses and yeah. but we see it every day with patients that are yeah. poor metabolic health doing worse, especially in light of COVID. I, I just, I just really think that we need to keep screaming and you, you've motivated me actually, Stephen, like we're going to have more of these personal stories, these these patients that have gone through whatever it might be, whether it's cancer, whether it's been bypass surgery, whether it's a stroke and, and, and reverse their, their, their illness or diabetes based on how they've approached this. Cause it's too important. We gotta, we gotta attack this full, like full court press, my friend. No, absolutely. And, and going, thinking 80, 20, we have a, um, kind of a list in the office that we were talking to patients about after conventional treatment, the answering the question of what else can I do? One list is all the lifestyle interventions. Okay. And, and there's, there's a lot you can, we, we call this the prevention menu. There's low carb or therapeutic carb restriction, periodic fasting, overnight fasting, sleep, mindfulness, weightlifting, hit, community, social, religion, and alcohol reduction. Mm. Okay. Then there's a separate list for vitamins and supplements. You know, you name it, uh, berberine, green tea extract, curcumin, resveratrol, vitamin C, blah, 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 blah. And then there's a list of repurposed medications like metformin, aspirin, beta blockers, statins, a bunch of, you know, it's funny, we've been using mebendazole and and doxycycline as anti-cancer agents for those patients who are, who actually bring it to us. We don't always advocate it, but if they're, if they're, if they clue in, we're more than happy to offer it. And you saw with COVID, um, you know, all those, you know, helminthic agents, parasitic agents, you know, of being of interest as possible. And chloroquine is on that list yeah. um, because they work through the same mechanism. They work through changing the energy. They, they target the mitochondria mm-hmm. and change the energy metabolism. But to go back to the idea of 80-20, no one can do everything that's on my list. Right. Right. And you have to pick what are those few items that you can do well, that if you can get 80% of this, you got it. Yeah. You're doing more than everybody else. Yeah. That's really the way, way I think about it. Uh, if you're already doing low carb and you're getting good sleep and going to the gym, you know, I don't know that you need to take drugs. I don't know that you need to take all those supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it's a full-time job to follow the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love yeah. it, man. Cause it gives them, give people hope. Cause you choose what you feel like uh, you could ac- accommodate and what suits your personality and your lifestyle. But there's a, there's a, a laundry list of 
of options there. And um, yeah, it's personalized. It keeps coming back to it. It's personalized. Exactly. Exactly. Steven, this has been fantastic. We, that was a fast 90 minutes. Oh my God. That was, this was glorious. I mean, I, I could just hear, I could hear the people listening. Quadcast Nation, I hear you. You're going to want more <laughs> of Stephen Tucker after this one. This was tremendous. I learned a ton. I'm inspired after this. I want to keep pushing innovation. I want to keep pushing, you know, improving metabolic health. So thank you very much for doing this. Where can people get a hold of you, Dr. Stephen Tucker? So easiest is, uh, you know, email the office. Uh, go to the website, uh, www.tuckermedical, all one word, .com. That works. Uh, if they want to email me personally, just put S-T-U-C-K-E-R at tuckermedical.com, info at tucker.com, all of it. It all works, you know. And uh, if, if that doesn't work, then they should reach out to you and you'll find me. <laughs> 100%. And, buddy, thank you. This was incredible. This was fun. Very good. Wildcast Nation, that was incredible. Knowledge being thrown left, right, center, tools to improve your metabolic health, reasons why as cancer patients, this is important. Dr. Stephen Tucker, what a gamer. Follow us at Quadcast on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, wherever you see fit, make sure to subscribe, leave that five-star rating. You're hearing us, we're changing the boogie. We need to increase the visibility of the show to continue to change that boogie. We really appreciate all the love. Loretto, fan number one, I want to give an individual shout out to you. All the support, all these months, we love you. Resilience Conference, don't forget to sign up. Solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience. We really want to improve the overall well-being of all y'all that are struggling in these crazy times. Otherwise, guys, thanks so much for listening and stay safe.